Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and I am so happy that our friend and one of the favorite guests on Fraudology, Frank McKenna, is back today. If you are not familiar with who Frank McKenna is, I don't know where you've been, but he is the chief fraud strategist and a co-founder at Point Predictive, which is a solution provider that in a consortium that works with auto lenders and other entities in the loan segment to help fight auto loan fraud and other types of loan fraud. But what he is probably known for even more than his work on Point Predictive is his blog, Frank on Fraud. That really is one of my go-to sources. I look at it at least once a week often when I'm putting together the news episodes for Thursdays to see what does Frank think is news or what did I miss this week that is important. And something that I really appreciate about Frank is that even though he and I have been on two different sides of the coin, so to speak, on fraud prevention, there's a lot of overlap, but then we also learn things from each other. Where I've spent most of my time concentrated on e-commerce and marketplace online fraud prevention and really learning the tactics of the bad actors as well as various strategies to prevent them. Frank has been on the banking side, the mortgage loan side, the lending side, so to speak, for all kinds of loans, really focused on that and the types of fraud that occur there. And so there's definitely, you know, some overlap, but there's things on each side that we both enjoy learning from each other. And oftentimes he'll reach out to me and say, hey, I'm doing an article on buy now, pay later. What kinds of fraud issues are e-commerce companies facing? And then other times I'm like, hey, someone I'm working with now has one part of their business is in the loan sector and they're seeing synthetic fraud. What do you recommend? So we both really, I think, at least I can speak for myself, appreciate having that extra step of knowledge that's more concentrated on each side. And you might say, well, online fraud is online fraud. And in a way, that is true. A lot of the tactics, I mean, fraudsters don't really change their tactics for a bank or a e-commerce company as much as they tailor their tactics to a specific target company and the types of tools or prevention methods or prevention technology or requirements and thresholds that they have. But there are some differences. And up until the last couple of years, really, we've been pretty segmented. What I mean by that is e-commerce and marketplace and some fintech companies We'd all go to similar conferences. We'd read the same publications. We, you know, overlap a lot more on LinkedIn, right? Because a lot of us are friends or know each other, et cetera. And then the same was true on the banking and the lending side. Those people that were in fraud prevention and detection for financial services went to the same conferences and read the same stuff and 
probably listen to the same podcast. But the last few years, it's really, and that was okay because we might both see account takeovers, but the banks saw them first because money is always going to be easiest to steal than items and that because money doesn't have to be fenced. I mean, <laughs> maybe it needs to be cleaned, but it doesn't need to be fenced. Whereas when a bad actor steals a product from e-commerce, oftentimes they need to sell it on a third-party marketplace to then convert that into cash. So there's some differences there. So obviously they'll use their newest tactic on banking first because the stakes are higher. Then it trickles in to for account takeover, for example, that targeted banks first, but then fairly quickly online gaming saw it and then a lot of other pieces. And now any retailer with a login can experience account takeovers. So you can kind of see that transition through the ecosystem, but also because the businesses are different. There's just, we're asking for different information. There's different goals in mind for those bad actors. So, for example, a lot of times on the financial services and banking side of fraud, they're committing identity theft. They are creating a whole new identity or a synthetic identity, and they're really focused on that. And sometimes it's to get a credit card and then they'll use that stolen payment method on e-commerce. So definitely bad actors are crisscrossing across, but there's just different because of the business models and the payments and all of that and what's being stolen and how it's being stolen. We're just approaching problems in a different way. Banks don't necessarily have shipping addresses. I mean, I guess they do for like a credit card for a loan. They don't necessarily have a shipping address, but they're collecting so much more information. Whereas on the e-commerce side, we're not collecting as much information about the person, but we have the credit card number and some other factors that we can look at there for risk. So I'm going into all of this to try to say that one of my goals when starting this podcast was while I'm mostly focused on e-commerce fraud, so of course that's you know what most of the topics and, and guests will be about, there's so much more overlap now where I'm hearing from so many more people on the banking side and financial services and lending side saying, I love fraudology. And I'm like, really? What do you learn? And they really enjoy learning from e-commerce and, and knowing what we're seeing. And I, I, of course, love cross-pollinating information. So that makes me excited. But then also I hear from my e-commerce listeners who are like, I really enjoy hearing about different types of fraud that's impacting other types of businesses, not just because it's interesting. And if you're in fraud, you've got that bug and you just love to consume information and you have a passion for learning about it. But also because a lot of times the tactics and methods that are being seen on one side will be seen on the other side eventually. It'll be a little bit different for the reasons I just mentioned, but it also can help if you understand the full life cycle of fraud and how it impacts different types of companies throughout the ecosystem. You can kind of understand where you fall in that and where your company falls in that. As well as maybe this isn't a problem you have now, but in a year or two, you're like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing Frank McKenna talking about credit washing. And I wonder if that's what this is. And that's happened so many times on previous topics that we've discussed on the podcast. So that is why I keep wanting to kind of cross pollinate. So sometimes we'll talk about e-commerce fraud, other times we'll talk about banking fraud. I'm obviously learning so much on either side, but there are two topics that Frank has been talking about in his blog and in his LinkedIn posts a lot lately that 
I didn't know that much about. And I figured, look, I don't know that much about it. I'm sure there's a pretty decent size of my audience who doesn't know exactly what it is or what the impacts are either. So I asked Frank to join me for a conversation on two different topics. One is credit washing and the other is check fraud. And a lot of us on the e-commerce side have been like, really check fraud? We're very confused about how that is making a resurgence. And so Frank definitely talks about that. And I decided because it's the summertime and because I know that some of these episodes are longer than an hour. And quick side note, we're going to be sending out a survey soon. I'm going to be talking about it very soon. And I want to know, like, do you love the long form podcast? Do you like it when they're an hour and a half? Do you want them shorter? Do you want them in 20 minute segments? That would be so hard for me, but I will do it. <laughs> Maybe that would make my life easier. So anyway, back to the topic at hand. We decided to split them up into two different episodes. They're not that long of conversations each, but I feel like there's two totally different topics. And I think it's worth focusing on one this week and focusing on the other next week. So this episode, Frank is going to walk me through credit washing and why it matters and what it is and all of that. And so I really think that you guys will find it interesting. I actually didn't really think that this was fraud. I had to kind of be convinced of it. But once I understood the impact that it has on businesses and the impact it has on the ecosystems, I understood that credit washing is very similar to friendly fraud or first party uh, chargeback fraud that we see on e-commerce. So I'm going to let him really talk about what it is and why it matters and all of that. But I just kind of wanted to give you a little bit of background on why I think it's important to listen to people who may have a different area of expertise than us. I mean, I probably don't have to tell you guys why that's important, but sometimes I think, you know, wait, are we talking about e-commerce fraud? Are we talking about banking fraud? All of it. Because really, at the end of the day, as business models keep mixing up and e-commerce companies are starting to offer financial services and vice versa and all of that, as well as fraudsters are getting more sophisticated and cross-pollinating their own information on their end, I think it's important for us to know about all the types of fraud. So with that, I am going to let you listen in on my the first half of my conversation with the Frank McKenna. As always, I will put a link to his LinkedIn profile in the show note, and I will talk to you again next week. Frank McKenna, welcome to Fraudology. Thank you so much for having me back. This is my third visit with you on Fraudology, right? think so. Third or fourth, I was actually going to look beforehand. I'll, I'll look before I do the introduction and let everyone know where else they can listen to you on the podcast. Yeah, I love our conversation. So thanks for having me back. Well, thank you for making time. I know very busy, but I learn a lot from reading your blog on a regular basis, Frank on Fraud, mm -hmm. for anyone who doesn't know about it. And I've been noticing you talking a lot about credit washing as well as check fraud and check washing. And mm -hmm. those are things I don't know as well as I would like to. And they're not necessarily things that 
in the day-to-day e-commerce merchants would come across, but not all my listeners are in e-com, right? Some of them are in banking and some of them are all over. And a lot of people are moving around and the lines are getting blurrier than ever. And this podcast is really about all fraud. So for all those reasons, I, I wanted to have you back and help us understand what these things are and why they're becoming such a big issue. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think if you you look at it, credit washing, I think you talked about that. You know, it's a really, really interesting problem that's just grown about 400% in the last few years. That's always kind of a cause and effect and we can chat about that. But it's probably in some industries, the number one fraud problem. And it's probably one of the most hidden problems because you don't actually really know when it's happened. So it's a really interesting fraud. So it's kind of my one of my passions over the last couple of years is tracking it. Yeah. It's because I've been seeing some, you don't see much written about it, but I hear from auto lenders, mortgage lenders, and personal lenders that mm. they get impacted by quite a bit. So... So let's start there. How do you define credit washing? Yeah. So credit washing at its root is filing a fake identity theft claim with your lender. So what it is, is you can go to the FTC, FTC ftc.gov. And when you're a victim of identity theft, you can file a claim there and you can say, I'm a victim of identity theft. And then you can go to your bank and say, if you have, if you filed that identity theft affidavit, you can then use that and go to your bank and say, Hey, this account that I have is not mine. I never applied for it. But in all actuality, you are actually, you do own the account. You're just trying to get the account off the credit bureau, the negative trade line. So at its core, it's really filing fake identity theft claims to get credit removed from your credit bureau. And so just to clarify, because I know I have listeners all over the world, this primarily is happening in the U.S., right? Because of the policies and processes with the credit bureaus. It's primarily happening here in the U.S. Doesn't mean that it's happening elsewhere. But I was just, I was in Canada, actually, because I brought this up. I was talking to about 30 different auto lenders up there. And I was like, credit washing is our number one problem. And everybody was like, they had no idea what it was. So it was definitely a U.S.-centric problem. Some and it also knows of those Canadians that don't know all of the fraud stuff that we have to know down here. <laughs> yeah, they got their own frauds that we don't. Uh, yes, absolutely. Like, right. We're not, they're not completely mute, but on this one, they are. Mm-hmm. And really some of the nuances about the U.S. market that make it really prevalent here is the first thing is the government has tried to make it really easy for consumers who are victims of identity mm-hmm. theft to fix their credit. So the FTC in 2018 made it far easier for people by putting the affidavit online and letting them file these claims online. Mm. So they kind of automated and made it a very quick process. What's most interesting about credit washing is that it's highly tied into the dramatic spike in identity theft that we saw immediately after that change was made. So if you go to 2008 Mm -hmm. and you look at identity theft claims through Javelin and other industry reports, you'll see a spike of about three or 400% in identity theft claims immediately after the FTC made it easier for victims to file claims. Okay, so why did identity theft spike that high right after this change was made? It points to credit washing. It points to fake identity theft claims. And to kind of bolster that, when when we started to talk to auto lenders in 2019, in around January, February of 2019, immediately after this change, the claims that were coming into their investigations units 
rose 400%. 400% increase in identity theft claims after the FTC made this change. And then 400% internally for just that one lender too. Or that one lender. Wow. And after they investigated, they found that 98% of the claims that are coming in for identity theft were fake, meaning that the borrower did apply for the account. In fact, many times the the borrower had actually made payments on the account, but then stopped payments. So they were able to look at the look at the payment and they pulled the microfiche or whatever they do to look at who made the payment and it was from their bank account to the lender. So they would reject the claims. But I was just gonna ask if there's a if there's recourse for those lenders. Because my understanding of one of the pieces of impact on this, so you've listed one already as far as it's impacting how we track identity theft and what we look at as a whole from fraud perspective. We have to assume that while it says the identity theft rose 400% well, that also is in correlation with when this rule changed and when it made it easier. But then another impact is the fact that more or less when there's negative trade lines on a consumer's account, it's because they owe money to a lender. And when they when they dispute that to get it off their trade line, they're also trying to erase repayment yeah. of that loan, right? Absolutely. Okay. So that's really why it's impacting lenders so much because they're like, it's essentially friendly fraud, just instead of a credit card or first party fraud. My preferred term, we all know the friendly fraud one more, it seems. It's essentially like we see in friendly fraud with chargebacks. It's just instead of chargebacks, it's the holding line oh, upgrade, yeah. right? The loan. And there's some other interesting nuances about it. So this whole thing became a moneymaker for credit repair companies. Mm. And so we think of who's behind this now is when they saw this change being made, these credit, there's, first of all, credit repair is huge here in the US. It's a huge industry. It's a $3 billion billion a year are generated by credit repair companies for consumers. But many of these credit repair companies that emerge are a one person operation operating out of their kitchen with the website and for, for virtually no money, what they can do is set up a website, advertise on Instagram that I'll fix your, I'll clean your credit for you. And what they'll do is in mass, they will basically get a consumer who's got terrible FICO score and terrible credit score and lots of bad debt. And they'll say, I'm going to, I'm going to erase that credit from you. And you're going to have a new FICO score. It's going to be 700. You're not going to have any debt. And what they'll do, what makes it especially dangerous is they'll go out, they'll go to the FTC themselves, they'll fill out the F, the file, the fake claims. Then they will go to the to the lenders, 30, 40 of them at a time, send the same letter. It's a rote late letter that they're basically cut and paste, cookie cutter language. And they'll say, this is not my account. I never applied for it. According to this, this jurisdiction law, cite legal terms, and they'll say, remove this from my credit. And they'll do this all at once. And they'll flood lenders with thousands and thousands of claims. The lenders, by the way, have 30 days to investigate and respond. Mm. When they get this tidal wave of claims coming through, they're much more likely to miss the deadline. When they miss the deadline, it's automatically deleted. (sighs) It's kind of this this game of Mm -hmm. flooding the lender with way too much. So what ends up happening At the end of the day, to your point, the lenders end up writing this off because they can't collect. The worst thing, though, is that these people oftentimes are now have a brand fresh new slate. They look like their credit score is great and they just go back out, do it all over again. And so Uh they don't learn their lesson the first time. They don't. They don't. Well, that's why they go to these credit repair agencies, take advantage of that. 
So Right, right. And it's, I remember back in 08 or even 06 or something like that, I knew people in my personal life, not close friends, but like friends of friends that were kind of using the bankruptcy processes that, oh, I just racked up all my credit cards and took out a home loan and everything else and then filed bankruptcy and it's all washed away. And now, it, but then you have a bankruptcy on your record. In this case, you're just wiping those away as if they never happened. So the next lenders aren't aware of the risk that that consumer could pose. I mean, I'm a walking example. I did not have good credit in my early 20s and was able to rebuild it the slow, methodical way. So it can happen. And mine was mostly bad because of the divorce and some other stuff. But but like, because I think on its surface, I didn't think credit washing was that big of a deal, to be honest. When you first Mm. started talking about it, I was like, I mean, because I wasn't thinking of it at scale. I read one of your most recent articles about one of these credit washers and I mean, it was thousands of them and they yeah. charges them for that service. Right. So then he makes, they make money off of that. Yeah. And it's the reason why you didn't hear anything about it is because it's so hidden mm-hmm. because law enforcement had really not done anything about it until recently. So just this year, we finally have had three pretty big cases of credit repair companies being getting some backlash from the FTC, the FTC filing injunctions against them, suing these credit repair companies. So the the story you're referring to is from Alex Miller Credit Repair. Mm-hmm. Alex Miller is the goat, the uh, greatest of all time. Self-proclaimed goat, right? Self-proclaimed goat. <laughs> he would charge people you know, between one and two thousand dollars, and he would say, "I have the, I think he call it the three, the three blast method, where he basically would take their credit before them, try to get everything deleted. If it failed the first time, he'd do it again to the lenders, and then he'd do it again." And his claim was that if he just kept doing it over and over again, that he would get the lenders to remove the credit. Sardine is now sponsoring Fraudology. And one of the reasons I've been so impressed by Sardine is their founder, Soups Ranjan. You'll hear my full conversation with him in the next few weeks, and you'll get to hear about some of his experiences and his passion for fraud fighting for yourself. But the TLDR, or the high-level summary, is that he started out as a fraud fighter with an engineering and data science background, and he was tasked with quickly identifying a fraud solution for one of the fastest-growing companies in the relatively new and high-risk crypto industry almost a decade ago. But after learning about the available options for online fraud detection, he became frustrated with the existing tools on the market. And as fellow fraud fighters, I think a lot of us know exactly the kind of tools he was frustrated with. The legacy fraud tools that just return a score or a signal or a yes, no, maybe without your team getting to understand all of the aggregated data or the value attributed to each data point that goes into calculating that score or the vendor who won't give you your company's data for your own models. And their own user interface was probably an afterthought. And let's be honest, Soup wasn't the only one who's been frustrated by the status quo in fraud technology. But not all of us are able to rage quit our jobs, recruit a few of the smartest risk engineers we've ever known, and go build a fraud platform that is truly built by the fraud squad for the fraud squad. A platform for KYC, AML, and payment risk all in one product that lets the client company decide how to best use the massive amounts of data that's available to them. That's pretty much exactly what Soups did a few years ago. And the result of those efforts has become one of the fastest growing solution providers in fraud that I've seen in many years. 
and that company is Sardine. To learn more about Sardine or to book a personalized demo, you can go to www.sardine.ai or just click the link at the top of the description for today's episode. So he got sued. He fought back. He actually, I think, won according to what I read in the court documents. But what happened is as part of that court case, there were some of the details of the investigation the FTC did against him. And I thought that's where there were some really interesting things that I kind of behind the scenes, what the FTC is finding with these fake identity theft claims. And what they found is one of the investigators for the FTC looked into the data. So You've heard of the Consumer Sentinel, which is the the database they use for all the fraud stats across the U.S.? It's got millions of reports from consumers. And what was interesting about what they found is they started to dig into consumers that had went to him and they looked in the databases and they found about 10,020 different identity theft reports just for him that were into the consumer sentinel, something like that. And all of them had, when they looked at the forms that were submitted, they all had the same cookie cutter comments. Like the one I said, I recently found that there are several trade lines on my credit bureau and accurate information that I never applied for. And all of them use the same exact language. All right. So Mm -hmm. consumer is going to go in, they're not going to all type in the same thing. So that means one person was doing it. It was the consumer. The second thing is a lot of those didn't even come from the United States. They came from the Philippines. Hmm. Oh, there was somebody like the, uh, through device ID or or through device ID that right. the, somebody was logging in from the Philippines, filling out these identity theft claims. And then when they did the bank account, they did looked at his PayPal and things like that. Is they found just millions of dollars in like funds that were paid to him, nine point five million or something like Whoa, that. Oh, wow, that, yeah, that he made, that he made, that he made by using. The government, and I mean, his profit margin is zero, right? Because, I mean, a hundred percent is what I mean. Like there's no expenses because, or CAC or whatever you want to call it. Like there's no cost of goods because. Well, yeah, in this case, there was a little In the government? Oh, okay. There was a little bit of cost of goods. They found a credit repair specialist in the Philippines that received about $250,000 from him. So that one would say. Out of how many million? Of 9.5 million. Oh, 9.5 million. And he paid right. this or sold 250. How? Yeah. Wow. Her name was Cherry May Priago, I guess was her name. And he wired her 121,000. So, wow. Not very much. He did not pay well. And chances are she was the one that was doing the manual. Probably. We were just talking pay. before recording about how some people hire virtual assistants that are really good out of the Philippines and other countries like that. Yeah, yeah, uh, so they're really good at admin work. So maybe <laughs> that's what he did is found a, a virtual assistant. I don't know. That could have been. Yes. Yeah, she appeared to have a credit rate repair agency herself. So what's going on there? Oh, okay. But, Hard but, to yeah. know if he taught, if she started her own after or before or whatever, but that's not so much the case as his only expense because he was using the government system. And this is a free system to allow people to legitimately claim that they were a victim of identity theft. He was abusing that system, but not even doing it well. I mean, the thing, the one thing that came across my mind as I was reading that, I mean, there were several things, but one thing I wanted to ask you was, it seems like the things he was doing were relatively easy to find if the investigator knew what to look for. Mm-hmm. I worry that with, and I'm not blaming you at all, just 
sometimes I worry with the, even just within those documents, right? Saying how they identified him, if the next version of him or if what he's going to do next is start using other devices and, you know, using different words and different verbal and that way it's okay. I know how I got caught this time. So now I'm going to do it differently next time. I don't know if that's. It'd be, yeah, that, that could be the case. It's all these things that they had detected, though, were never done up front. So mm. actually, an investigator had to go in retrospectively and they right. had subpoenas, mm. get the data from the Good banks. Point. They had to go to an outside agency to get the consumer sentinel data. So they, on all likelihood, maybe the hopefully FTC is doing more here to be more proactive. Like, mm. look, I would say the FTC should be looking at, are these claims coming from the U.S. to begin with? Or are they yes. finding the same IP basic stuff right there? Yes. Maybe, maybe this is your, we talked about. Then again, you and I know, right. You and I know that the government needs this basic stuff in a lot of areas. Yeah. needed it for a while. Right. Government is, yeah, they could use the help. But the thing is, think about the 9.5 million he made, how easy it was for somebody else to do it. And this fundamentally is the problem, is that it's Mm -hmm. very easy to do. He's teaching other people how to do it. There's tutorials on how to do it. It's very lucrative and it's kind of a win-win for him and the consumer. So I don't expect this to go away anytime soon. And that's why I've been kind of tracking it because I don't see much being done to curtail it. And when something isn't being curtailed, it's just going to grow. Yeah. And for those of us who have been blessed or cursed, it depends on the day, with a strong sense of justice that isn't just isolated to the traditional bad guys, we want to keep sounding the alarm. I mean, I've been sounding the alarm similarly on refund front for the last two and a half years saying, guys, this is going to grow. This is going to grow. And as it grows, I don't want to be right. These are the kinds of things you don't want to be right about. But if nothing changes, nothing changes. What can lenders do about this? I know there are several consumer lending companies that listen to fraudology. I mean, it sounds like at the very least, they can hire more people to process these claims. So that sounds so manual and expensive for them. But is that what they're doing or what what are they doing and what can they do? Yeah, the first thing is, let's think about some steps they can take. First thing is, if you get an identity theft claim, you have to do a fraud challenge to it. You can't just accept it and write it off, which some do, Mm -hmm. right? They get it and they take it at face value. Right. The first thing to do is you got to pull up the original application and look at the how long ago was the application, right? Mm. A consumer, unless they've been out of the country for many, many years or in jail or something where they haven't looked at their credit, it's unlikely for people to file identity theft claims on loans that were funded three, four or five years ago, right? It's get, it's Right, right. If somebody was stealing, if someone actually stole your identity, you probably would have noticed it on your credit over the last several years. And you and the frauds, nobody would have paid on that for months or years, right? That's the key. That's the second thing. Oh yeah, it was years ago. So there's like a strong correlation between credit washing and how long ago the account was opened up. So it's the longer it is, the more likely it is to be credit washing. Number two, pull up the payments. If the consumer made one payment, they knew about the account at some point or they knew the person or... There was some attachment to them. So that's going to be a reason to deny. The other things are looking at IVR calls that come into the bank. Mm. Were there calls that came from their phone number? Had they talked to the consumer before during collections? There's a lot of telltale signs between a legitimate 
identity theft claim and illegitimate. The credit bureaus should be doing something about this, right? Because the credit bureaus get to see the big picture, right? They see if there's 15 lenders and the claim comes through. The system's called eOSCAR. eOSCAR is kind of the main central agency where everything goes through that ties to the credit bureau. If a credit bureau sees that a consumer is disputing 15 accounts with 15 lenders as identity theft at the same time. Especially if those accounts started at different times, right? Right. They didn't open 15 lending accounts the same week or the same day, which is typically what you would expect someone who steals an identity to do. They want to monetize it as quickly as they can before the victim notices it. So Absolutely. Yeah. That's exactly the thing is like, if you've investigator, you know about fraud and you know about identity theft, that it's a fast moving, take as much as you can mm-hmm. because eventually the customer is going to find out and you're going to have to move to the next identity. That still holds true. So when the, you look at these claims, you have to look at it for that as well. The fact is a lot of banks are doing really well at identifying these. Hmm. Pretty much across the board, the big banks I've worked with, about 98% of their identity theft claims are being rejected. Wow. Right out due to credit washing. We're talking thousands of months, right? We're not talking this is a hundreds. We're talking on the order of many, many hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars that's being filed illegitimately. So it's not a small problem. Just going back to what you were, sorry, just going back to what you were saying, but the credit bureaus, are they not doing anything now? At least not that we can see. They're not doing anything now that... I can see or we can see. I think there may be reasons they can't. Maybe there's reasons that they can't because it's it's FCRA or it's, I don't know, credit for credit protection. They, right, credit, right. Consumer protection, maybe the they reporting. cannot deny claims. Maybe they are not allowed to. Hmm. It would be great if they could, whatever yeah. they could. Yeah, or have at least the- give the FTC some support or access or something because their systems are being used to yeah. defraud lenders. And therefore, then there's this whole circle of we know that at the end of the day, the good consumers are going to be the ones that have to pay a little bit higher price to... That's right make up for all of these, you know, accounts going into collections. And once that, once it's erased off of their credit report, you can't go off after them to repay them. So that's millions of dollars there too. That's right. Or billions, I'm sure. I think it's in the billions for easily in the billions, especially mm-hmm. if you the identity theft claims going up. The other key indicator, fake police reports. <laughs> Something that... Mm-hmm. I think there was another case, the FTC, maybe it was Rose Credit Repair recently where she was arrested for doctoring police reports along with identity theft claims. So she, an investigator from a, from a big bank who I talked to, he told me he was at the fax machine and he, and he looked at the fax header, which supposedly it came from the consumer or the police report, but it had on the top, it had like Rose Credit Repair on the fax header. So I had the phone number and then he, right. and he found it went to the credit repair agency. And that's how he drew the link between this credit repair company and this police report. He called the, I think it was in Houston, he called the police agency there and they said, that's not our police report, that's fake. And then he found like 14 or 15 or more of the same police report with all these identity theft claims. So he was able to break that case open and this massive scheme. That's another thing is to look at those police reports and look for cookie cutter text because that's often a key dead giveaway. So does the identity theft, the FTC where consumers can go and file and claim identity theft, are they required to provide police reports or no, not anymore? Not anymore. Which That's what I thought. Makes it interesting that she did this. But yeah. I the police reports, because so many of these claims now are being 
denied or being rejected mm-hmm. by banks because they're finding out they're upping the game. So right. they're, they're trying to providing the appearances of legitimacy. Exactly. So now they're up in the game by filing. You put a police report. It looks even more official. You're going to scare the bank into thinking, well, I'm not going to deny this. They filed the police report. This is a crime. So yeah, they're upping the game and it's the cat and mouse game of fraud. So they don't have to, but they do, which is interesting. Yeah. It just strikes me that all of these things, whether we're talking about refund fraud or credit card fraud or thing that we're dealing with now in 2022, Mm -hmm. a lot of it is happening at a huge scale. And I think, and you've kind of mentioned it already, it's this industrialization of fraud as a service, right? So if you want to get a fake police report, it's very easy to find them. If you want, I I don't know if I'd necessarily put credit repair companies into fraud as a service, though. I guess that's exactly what they're doing, but just it's a different type of fraud as a service, but they're... Fraud is absolutely fraud as a credit repair. Yeah, you're right. I was kind of thinking it through. These credit repair companies, don't forget, because you always mentioned you'd like drawing the link between frauds that happen here and other industries. But these credit repair companies are also responsible for uh, most of the synthetic identity that's happening here in the U.S. by selling yes. credit privacy numbers. So they're not. That's right. We talked block. about that the last time you were here. Yeah. The, the same. P- yeah. The CPNs. Oh, okay. Right. Yes. And then selling fake trade lines and then selling fake pay stubs when you apply for a loan, giving you fake employers, mm-hmm. making you everything. They are analogous to the professional refunders for these merchants, these are the, yeah, these are the professional refunders for lenders. This is right. Allegus to that. Right. Because thing. at the end of the day, I mean, just like with refund fraud, they're allowing consumers or thieves or whatever we want to call them to acquire goods from retailers without paying for them, essentially. And in exactly. York, in this case of credit washing, these credit repair companies are allowing consumers take a loan, get a car, get whatever they get out of that loan or whatever the purpose of that loan is. So they're receiving the goods, so to speak, and then erasing it so that the company that gave them that loan doesn't get repaid and there's no proof of it so that they can do it again. Exactly. Um, so you're right. It's very similar to that. Very similar. And it's, yeah. So fraud as a service is, that's why fraud's going up. Yeah. You don't even have I, to know how to do it anymore. You just no. Yeah. It. There's a person for that, right? Like there, <laughs> just like there used to be an app for that. There's a, there's a fraudster for that. Maybe that's my new, <laughs> my new tagline. <laughs> there's a fraud for that. I don't know. I'll have to like workshop that, but it's true. So just wrapping up on this, because I know check fraud is also a big topic we need to talk about. And that one is also impacting some merchants and fintechs and others. And I'm fascinated by why we're going back to checks. So really want to dive into that. But before we do, just it sounds like in order to get a handle on this, multiple agencies have things that they can do, right? The credit report or the credit agencies can provide more visibility because they do have that visibility in there and they can, you know, there's probably a myriad of things they can do. Right. They could flag it, et cetera, depending on if they could or are able to. But that should be something that the FTC works with them on or they are willing to work with the FTC because that also impacts them as well, I would imagine. In some ways, at least the credibility of credit scores as well as other things. The FTC should be 
doing this more proactively than reactively. Hopefully the fact of at least these three big cases that were quite sizable, hopefully that helped someone in that organization to advocate for preventative measures and identification, being able to detect yeah. and identify this before it gets to the lenders. But in the meantime, the lenders can put efforts into responding to them at yes. scale. Yeah, I think that's it. And then, yeah, I think those are the big ones. I mean, I think people will get better at stopping it. I just worry that it's not going away anytime soon because it's not got that much exposure. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's credit to you for giving it exposure. I do think it helps. You know, there are bigger, not that your media empire isn't big, but it's not even your. There's a, there's like a part-time. Yeah. There's a core group of investigators I talk to quite often from different banks and lenders that can't talk about it. They can talk about it to me. Yep. I like to give them a voice and a, an yes. doesn't expose their trade secrets, but also gives them some exposure on what's happening so they can get more, get their voice out there yes. away and get it known and say, hey, this is a problem. So yeah. I just like kind of speak for them and they're and like just as passionate about it as they are. And I in fact, they, very they might just lean into that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can very much relate to there's a uh, merchant who's kind of gruff and I never totally know where I stand with him when I see him at conferences and things like that. And when I saw him at one a few a couple months ago, it was an after conference event. So there was obviously some alcohol around, but you know, he said, Carice, you're my voice. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like, you give us a voice. And there were and there were several at that table and they were all very big brands. And that was like what an amazing privilege I have, but also huge responsibility. And I know you can relate to that as well. Yeah. You know, the one other thing I'd say on this, when you were talking about just the change that happened and probably with very good intentions, right? The FTC is like, okay, this is too difficult for consumers to file identity theft claims. And we're getting so many because there are a lot of, there is a lot of identity theft. So we're going to allow it online. We're not going to require police reports, et cetera, et cetera. It was all with good intentions. Yeah. But the effect, that was the cause, but the effect of that was this huge spike in identity theft. Yeah. And then when you go even a couple layers down, it's like, well, actually, this is fake identity theft. These are liars, et cetera. We've dealt with the exact same thing on the e-commerce payment side yeah. when merchant or consumers file fraud chargebacks. Pre-2011, they had to fill out an affidavit. They had to solemnly swear that they didn't use their credit card under perjury. They had to get a new card reissued to them, et cetera, et cetera. And once Visa and then MasterCard took that requirement away, we saw this humongous spike. You can see the same thing as you do in identity theft reports. You see a huge spike in fraud chargebacks and fraud claims. They should have talked to you before they did that. Ah, you could well, have told them what was going to happen. I've been trying to advocate <laughs> for them to bring it back. And instead, they're making uh, some changes that I am very concerned about and have been very vocal about. But that is a whole other conversation. I, if I could say, if I, I mean, if anything, it's the opposite of what they are claiming it will do. But we'll see. But again, it's being a voice for the people who can't speak because their companies won't allow it for some 
right. good reason as well as, you know, some frustrating reasons sometimes. Frustrating mostly. Sometimes I think that, hey guys, this would actually make your bank look really good because it would show that if you have your head of fraud speaking out about these different types of fraud, it shows that you take your consumer safety seriously and you're protecting everyone's money and same with e-commerce and other areas. But I'm not in communications and that is a bigger battle than I can... <laughs> Yeah, and I know that I just, because I consult with a lot of banks, banks that are really tight-lipped about fraud mm. are generally not that good at it. They're generally are tight-lipped because, mm. it's being tight-lipped because they don't reach out, they don't go to conferences, we do it better our way here, they yeah, don't talk to anybody yeah. else. And that makes them not as good or responsive or understanding. So mm-hmm. being tight-lifted about fraud is typically not a good thing. It typically shows up pretty poorly in the, their stats. And yeah. Yeah. I think there's a difference, right? Like being tight-lipped publicly versus being tight-lipped within the industry. And yeah. both, I think, are, have different value. Yeah. But definitely, I see the exact same thing on the e-commerce fintech marketplace side. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.